Hey, this is Jim, pastor of Decided Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope the sermon you're about to hear just blesses your heart and really encourages you. If you don't mind, subscribe. That way you'll get instant notifications every time a sermon is uploaded. And by all means, if you're feeling led to give, click on the giving link and there'll be more directions to follow. God bless. Enjoy the message. Amen. Thank you, Dylan. Nice shirt, by the way. I appreciate that. Um, I, Dylan, if you don't mind, I'm going to piggyback off of your announcements. You're good. I'm just talking about you because I like to talk about you. Um, I'm going to add one more name to the uh, awesome turnout that we had for the 5K. Obviously, Marty Queen. Um, thank you so much for all that you do. And Alyssa, my wife, thank you so much for all that you do. But we have the race director himself in the room. Did you know that? So Ashley, my man back here, uh, he is the one who orchestrates the entire 5K. And he actually came here to be with us. So that's what it's all about. Thank you, my dude. If you didn't get a 5K t-shirt, we owe you one. Thank you for making it happen. He's got his whole family here. I want to meet y'all afterwards, so make sure you hang around. But, um, man, we've had quite the September. We started off with a 10 service at the land. Um, it was a little bit wet, but we did it. We made through, and we had an awesome block party and kind of introduced, kicked off the football season and the service areas and volunteer areas and light groups. And then we went right from that to the 35 new members that Dylan Smith was talking about. And I had a great class, biggest class ever in the history of Decided Church. So if you were part of that class, let me hear it. Uh, we have a battle of the chucks going on. I'm just going to say the, the yard chucks are beginning to fill as much uh, rows as the Olin chucks. So just saying, <laughs> battle of the chucks happening here. Um, and then if that wasn't enough, then we did baptisms last Sunday night. 20 people went public with their faith. If you're in the room today and you got baptized, can I just see you real quick? We got, yeah, we got two over here, one back there. That's awesome. We got one over here. Kevin was baptized. That's right. Thank you. Got Lauren back there. Uh, amazing, amazing testimonies. If you missed it, just put it down for next time. Don't miss baptisms. It is an awesome, powerful time. We had 20 people go public in their faith. But then we're like, yeah, I think we can fit one more thing into September. Let's do a 5K too. So we did the 5K. And man, September has been full. But if you didn't know, today's October 1st. So let's, let's turn the page and let us, let's bum rush Starbucks for all the PSLs. All right, any ladies in the room today? All right. And then um, what we're going to do is believe God that the same God who showed up and did miracles in September is the same God in October, and he can keep doing miracles and changing lives and growing this place. So I'm just excited to be here. Uh, thank you guys for hanging with us on a crazy busy September. Well, we're going to go today, we're going to go to the one place um, where cosmic geography and the church intersect. So if you like history and you like geography and you like the Bible, then this is for you because we're going to have kind of a mixed bag of all three. And I can't wait to show you this place. If you know anything about me personally, you knew we were coming here of all places. So Matthew chapter 16 in your Bibles. Uh, you don't have to stand because I'm not going to stand. Matthew 16, we're going to read verses 13 through 19. Uh, my wound is fine. It's a kickball wound. It's a kickball injury. It's fine. Um, 
I'm not sitting because of the wound itself, but my foot is like a literal sausage inside of my shoe. So um, I don't know what's going on in there, but whatever. Uh, we'll just cut it off if we have to. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Let's talk about today. You know where we're going. We're talking about the gates of hell today. The gates of hell. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And some said, oh, you're John the Baptist. Others said, Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, we love this guy because he always is the first one to talk. He replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood. This is one time he got it right. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, if you realize what you just said, you would know that wasn't you. <laughs> but I will tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's pray and then we'll get after our text this morning. God, do your work today. We thank you so much for Ashley Miller being here with us and all the work that he put into our 5K. And we also thank you for Marty and Alyssa and everybody who participated. Uh, God, we're just so incredibly privileged to sit on these sidelines and watch you do what you do. The life change, the miracles, the the incredible stories that were just held in the 30 days of September. And so we look forward to the God of October as well and what you're going to do this month. And we believe and we trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. The one place where cosmic geography and the church intersect. We're talking about a region known as Caesarea Philippi. Jesus enters a new area, a new district. And just to give you a picture of where we're talking about on the map, um, about the same location, you'll see this area of Israel and Jordan and Syria on the maps a lot this month. But you'll see that red location pin. That's where we're talking about. This is an area known today as Banias or Panias, named after the god of Pan, P-A-N. And so this in Bible times was known as Caesarea Philippi because Herod the great son, Philip, was over. He governed this region and he decided to name it. Well, after myself, why wouldn't I? So it's now Caesarea Philippi. Um, and this is named, this region is known Banias or Panias after the God of Pan. We'll come back to him. But where we are physically is at the base of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is, we got a picture of it. It's a beautiful mountain. It's 8,000 feet high. It's the highest elevation point in all of Israel and all of Syria and all of Jordan. Most of the year it's snow-capped. This beautiful Mount Hermon, 8,000 feet, hard to miss. So understand that when Jesus comes into Caesarea Philippi, this mountain they're all looking at, this huge, immovable face of this mountain is in front of them. Hidden in plain sight at the base of this mountain is the ominous mouth of a cave known biblically as the gates of hell. And if you've seen pictures of it, you'd know why. We have a couple pictures of the gates of hell. This is at the base of Mount Hermon. 
And uh, Marty was there. Next slide shows you a picture of the people in relation to how big this opening of the mouth of this cave is. Um, it's just, this is a huge crater. This is a huge hole in a mountain right here. And so uh, they, they're, they're the, the base of the Jordan River um, used to bubble up. It used to fountain from the mouth of this cave. And so originally the Jordan River would flow out of it. There'd be water flowing out of the mouth of this cave. An earthquake happened in 1000 AD. It collapsed part of the cave, changed the water flow to under the ground below the cave. But still, nevertheless, this is the, your source of the Jordan River. The snowfall from the mountain would, would melt and create that. So what about this Greek god of Pan? Because we have to talk about him in order to understand the cosmic geography importance of the region, the god of Pan. Um, in Bible times, there would have been a temple that stood beside the entrance, actually multiple temples. You can still see the ruins. I think we have a picture of all the temples that would have been there one day. Um, but a temple to Zeus, a temple court of Pan, upper temple, the lower temple, those were called the, uh, the temples of the dancing goats, which if you know that Pan is the god of shepherding and hunting and, and hunters. He's the god of sex. And so they would have dancing goats to do the rituals. I'm going to let you do the, uh, uh, the put it together in your brain there. Um, I'm not going to go into it. But um, to really understand the full context of what's going on here cosmically, you got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. And Genesis 6, anybody remember the story of what happens right before Noah and the flood? And Genesis 6, verse 1 through 4, we'll read it briefly together, and then we'll come back to Matthew 16, and we'll wrap it all up, I promise. But Genesis 6 talks about where the, uh, well, let's just read it. When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, 90% of everybody believes that as angelic, heavenly beings, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So you've got this intermingling between angels and people. So pretty crazy. And they took as their wives any they chose. Verse three, the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse four, the Nephilim. These were the people created. These were the giants that happened to be born due to the fact that you've got angels having intercourse with people, and now we've got giants. So if you literally trace back Goliath's ancestry, it's right here in this passage, the Nephilim. And how did they come about? When the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Genesis 6. What a lovely story that the Bible happens to include for us. But what we don't necessarily get is all the historical background between verse 4 and verse 5. Because Genesis 6 verse 5 begins the story of how God chose a man, a righteous man, who, who he knew would obey him, and that man was Noah. And Noah built the ark, right? Well, it was dry land for, for years and years and years as he was building this boat. But if you compare Genesis 6 to other non-canonical books, um, like the Gospel of Enoch or the Gospel of Thomas or Josephus, you'll see some historical texture that Genesis 6 doesn't include. And that's fine, and I'm not, I'm not advocating that these other books be part of the Bible because they're not. 
God saw fit that they are not. But I'm just going to give you a little bit of flavor. What happens between verse 4 of Genesis 6 and verse 5 is that these fallen angels, which we call demons, collectively decide you can read their conversation in the Gospel of Enoch or the Gospel of Thomas and even in Josephus. They decide collectively to descend upon earth. And where do you think they set up camp? Mount Hermon. You can read about it in all three, that these fallen angels descend on Mount Hermon, therefore designating it as a domain of darkness, a place of evil, a place of death, and therefore they are eventually worshipped. These creatures, these Nephilim, are eventually heralded and, and reverenced as gods, hence the god of Pan, this half-man, half-goat god of sex figure that shows up as Jesus and his followers roll into Caesarea Philippi, you got to understand that every single one of them would have known, what are we doing here? Jesus, like you got, there, there's so many places we could go and you could preach wonderful sermons to us. Why are we going to the base of demonic activity? They would do rituals here. They would perform perverted sexual acts. They would sacrifice children because they really thought that the waters that flowed from the mouth of this cave was, was the river of Hades that came out. That's why they call it the gate of hell, that opening, because the water that, they, that came forth from that, they would worship and they would use and and perform all kinds of wickedness, hoping that they would be blessed, that their crops would be fertile, that they would be fertile and have lots of children. So there's a lot of wickedness and evil and it's demonic activity. This whole area is a satanic realm. And you got to remember that as we approach the story in Matthew 16, because there's a rich layer that is uncovered here where you begin to understand what Jesus is saying. So back to Genesis chapter, Matthew chapter 16, when we have Jesus, his followers, they enter this area, they see the huge snow-capped Mount Hermon in front of them. They come to the base of this mountain known as the gates of hell. And Jesus so happens to pose this question, hey, who people been calling me lately? What are the rumors floating around, right? Some say John the Baptist. Some say Jeremiah. Jerry's right here. Some say, um, God help us if you're Jesus, right? Man. And then some say it's, um, some say he's Elijah. And then Peter, he says, oh man, one of the greatest lines of Peter. He didn't even know what he was saying when he said it, but he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now understand that against the backdrop of this area known for death, known for pagan ritual sacrifice, a bloody place, a pagan place, a place where demonic activity ran rampant. And Peter is saying, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus is saying, dude, you just said one of your greatest lines. And I know it was your greatest line because there's no way you could have come up with that. Heaven must have downloaded that on you. Jesus says, dude, um, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, and here we have the famous play on words, right? I tell you, you are Peter, which means little rock or pebble. And upon this rock, I build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so you've heard the couple of scenarios about this passage that, 
Oh, well, he, Jesus was saying, um, Jesus was kind of comparing who Peter was into who he was calling Peter to be, that, that Peter was a little rock, but eventually, Peter, you're going to be this, this rock, the foundation of the New Testament church. Who was taught that growing up? That, that Peter is the rock Jesus is referring to when he says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. It's, a, it's an interpretation of the passage. And then others say, no, 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 Jesus wasn't talking about Peter here. There's no way. We all know Peter. He was saying, compared to Peter, who is this Petra, this little rock, this pebble, I'm going to build my church. So Jesus was pointing back to himself right here, saying, you're Peter, I'm Jesus. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Who's heard that interpretation? Right, we've been taught these things. And then there's another interpretation that holds, no, 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 Jesus wasn't referring to any person present. He was referring to the doctrinal statement of Peter, that you are Christ, the son of the living God. And it was upon that theological declaration that Jesus was going to build his church. Peter said it first, and the whole paradigm of the New Testament church is going to be built on that doctrine that Jesus is the living God. True, but who's heard that interpretation? Right, we've, we've all heard these things floating around. But I want to propose to you something far more obvious, something far more hidden in plain sight of where they are standing. They're here in Caesarea Philippi. They, they, it's Mount Hermon is one of those places you just can't miss. You would, oh, there was a mountain here? I didn't know that. That'd be like base camp of Mount Everest not knowing Mount Everest is right in front of you. They're standing at the gates of hell, this opening in the mountain, at the base of the mountain. And Jesus is saying, you're Peter, but upon this rock, I will build my church. And the reason we know that is because he goes on to reference the geographical place where they're standing by saying, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A better interpretation is shall not withstand it shall not withstand it. In other words, could it be that Jesus is referring to the geographical place where they're standing together, saying, this very domain stronghold of darkness will not be able to contain the power of the church that will be built here. And this, by the way, was the first time church was ever mentioned in the entire Bible. The first mention of the church from Jesus's mouth. Can you imagine being one of his followers and, and Jesus downloading a brand new word you've never heard? Like what is the church up until now? It's been disciples, Israel, the chosen people, uh, the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. There's a lot of words for God's people, but not church. What is church? And that reminds us of who we are because you know what church means? A group of people like, like us. So Jesus was saying, upon this rock, my people, my called out group of people are going to be built here and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That God would put together a ragtag group of cussing fishermen and tax collector cheats and all kinds of people that he would decide to breathe his spirit into and decide of all places where he could introduce his church. I'm going to introduce my church for the very first time right in the mouth of the domain of darkness because this is what I want. This is the energy I want them to have that they are to be my people. Amen. Does that get you fired up a little bit? 
So the gates of hell, this is this geographical literal place where Jesus and his followers are standing. Not to mention the next chapter, they go all the way up to the top of Mount Hermon and Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. That happens right after this in Matthew 17. So Jesus is saying, man, when I'm lifted up, when you see me lifted up, that's your clue. That's your sign that my church, my people, my followers are going to be set up and established. The son of the living God. It was significant because this was the place of the dead. So Christ stands as a symbol of life in stark contrast to the backdrop of death. And the same is true today. I don't know how you came in here or where you came from, but we're all deserving of the death. We're all a son or a daughter of darkness, Ephesians 2 calls us, were it not for Jesus, who came, he, he invaded our darkness. He invaded death. He grabbed death by the throat and took it to hell when he died on the cross. He sent death to hell and then he rose victorious on the third day. So all of us as children of the light, when we're found in Jesus by faith, can say, that darkness has no hold on you. Darkness has no hold this morning. If you're a believer and if you're not a believer, let's get with it. Let's accept Jesus while we have the chance because darkness, this, this evil, spiritual, pagan, and heathen place is not somewhere where I want to be associated with. All the child sacrifice and goat dancing rituals and just the demonic evil activity that went on here. That's not where I want my name registered with. So I'm going to get with the son of the living God who stands in stark contrast to this area of death and evil in satanic realms. Dr. Michael Heiser, I encourage you to read his works, but he says this, this, this is high theological drama. Jesus says he will build his church in the gates of Hades, a Greek term denoting the abode of the dead, will not stop him. So Dr. Heiser in his book, Reversing Herman, referring to Mount Hermon, says, we tend to think of Satan as the aggressor against God's kingdom on earth. But as Jesus makes plain, just the opposite is true. Christ has come to invade Satan's realm. Man, that brings me to two points. Like, you can't miss this. If we miss the cosmic geography associated with this passage, we kind of miss the point of what our purpose is as a church. I believe that. We cannot miss Mount Hermon. We cannot gloss over the gates of hell because it gives the church her calling, her purpose, and that is twofold. Number one, you know what the gates of hell equip me with? This truth, our authority is superior. Our authority is superior. The kingdom of heaven, the church, this ragtag group of just numbskulls, I love you, but that's who we are, we're built over on top of in superior authority to the domain of death and evil. This is where Jesus introduces the church. Jesus is saying, I'm going to reverse death. I'm going to turn Satan's domain into his tomb, and I'm going to bring life from a place of darkness and evil. And you can have that life if you accept what Jesus did by faith in your place. Jesus is saying even the darkest, most wicked of evils still shudders at the mention of my name. So what does the church having authority mean for us today? Because are we them? 
Are we still Jesus's followers? Are we still the called out ones, this group of people? I find myself in this passage because he calls my name here. You are the church. And so what does the church having authority mean? John 12, John 12, 31. John 12, 31. What does the church having authority mean? It says it right here. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, this is the words of Jesus. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That was, that was fulfilled twofold. Not only on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he, is, where he, is, he fully becomes God in the, in the presence of mankind, but also as a symbol of how he would be lifted up on the cross, on Mount Calvary, how he would be lifted up, how he would be slain for the sins of you, the sins of me, that he would take all of our evilness and all of our wickedness and he would pay for it and buried in the tomb and rise again the third day. He says, when I'm lifted up, you'll know your ruler has been cast out. So I got good news for every believer, every Christ follower, every Christian today. Your enemy is cast out. The ruler of this world has been bound. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that before because we walk around and we think, well, I still struggle. I still sin. I still have failings. I still have shortcomings. And that is true. And we all deal with them. But what the scripture is saying is that's just because you're in a body of flesh and sin, but your ruler, that domain of darkness, that stronghold of evil, it has been cast out and dealt with. And I took it to hell when I died on the cross. John 14. John 14, verse 12 through 14. What does it mean that you as the church have authority? You have superior authority over darkness. What does it mean? John 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. The Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The power that is at your disposal, Christian, ought to be a little bit frightening. It ought to be a little bit too much power to wield effectively because we have the greater works. Greater works than Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit belong to us. Not only is our authority superior, you know what the gates of hell, you know what Mount Hermon shows me? that as a church, our assignment is offensive. Our assignment is offensive. And by that, I don't mean rude. I don't mean we have to go around being rude or mean to people. But what I mean is the opposite of what you saw yesterday on TV and football. Our assignment is offensive. There, were, there was little to, to nothing to get excited about in, fo- in the football world yesterday if you cheer for the teams I cheer for. But Nevertheless, the church stands in stark contrast, and we are called to be the aggressor, to move the ball downfield, to take the shot to the end zone. That is the role of the church, and the reason we know that is because gates are defensive tools. You don't take gates into battle and really ram people over the head with a gate. No, (laughs) gates are for your fortress. You put up gates when you don't want the enemy getting in. You put up gates when you're trying to hole up in your fortress and your stronghold and and hunker down and Katie bar the door. But that is exactly the opposite of what the church is called to do. It says, no, 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 no. 
Satan is the one on defense. It's the forces of darkness that have put up their gates. It is evil and wickedness that is on the retreat this morning. Whereas the church is called to be the hostile, invasive threat right into the throat of darkness. Who's with me this morning? You tracking? You there with me this morning? So our assignment is offensive. Jesus is saying hell itself will not be able to withstand the church's power or forcible invasion. We threaten spaces that they are used to being comfortable in. We are considered the hostile aggressor. Dr. Heiser points out, Jesus begins at ground zero in the cosmic geography of both Testaments to announce the great reversal. I love that phrase. It is the gates of hell that are under assault. And they will not hold up against the church. Hell will one day be Satan's tomb. Amen. So what does the church being on offense mean? What does it look like for you and I to be on offense? Ephesians 6. I'm not going to read this whole passage. You know it as the armor of God passage. But you ever wonder why we're not given any defensive tools here? No gates in Ephesians 6. That's the other team. What we're given now, yes, there's the shield of faith. There's the breastplate of righteousness. There's the gospel shoes. But as far as weaponry, as far as the tools we're given, they're only offensive. It's a sword, which is the word of God. This book right here, this living, breathing, powerful book in your hand. And the second one, not to be underestimated, is prayer. Those are your two offensive weapons. So let me just introduce this passage, and you can read the rest at home this week. But Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, it says this, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. I picture that as your O-line. I mean, you got to start with the line. We didn't see good examples of that yesterday. But all good football starts in the trenches with the O-line. you got to have disciplined People, you got to have those practices in place in your life. You got to have the spiritual disciplines in place in your life. This is what verse 11 is talking about. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That means we don't have to be mean to people. We don't have to criticize people. We don't have to judge or condemn people because of their sin, because they are not our battle. It's much bigger than that. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic, there's our word, cosmic powers over this present darkness. Do you think Paul knew what he was referring to when he wrote that phrase? He's referring to the same area that Jesus and his followers are standing at in Matthew 16. Against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. You go on to read it, but it talks about all our pieces of armor and it ends with the sword and the prayer. So we ought to be, what does it mean? What does it look like for the church to be on offense? It means that we ought to be bold sharing our faith. It means that we ought to be praying bold prayers. How's your prayer life? When's the last time you prayed a dangerous prayer and really believed God for it? When's the last time you shared your testimony with somebody, come what may? You didn't care about how it was received. You didn't care about the reaction you got. You said, I'm going to stand out for Jesus, like the 20 people that got baptized last Sunday night. My man, Kevin, right over here. I'm going to end with 2 Corinthians 10. 
What does it mean for the church to be on offense? Same author, Paul here, writing to the church, writing to us, the people that Jesus was referring to, Matthew 16, at the gates of hell, says this. For though we walk in the flesh, because we have to put up with it, that's what we deal with. That's why we still struggle. That's why we still have temptations, because we have to still put up with this flesh. Although we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. In other words, to destroy the gates of hell, to take down any Mount Hermans in our life or in our community. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to obey Christ. But don't stop there. Being ready to punish. Does that sound like an offensive or defensive word to you? Punish? Are you kidding me? I get to be on the team that's punishing others? Let's go. So being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete, verse 7, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is in Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is in Christ, so also are we. In other words, you got a whole host of heavenly armies at your brother, sister. If it seems lonely down here in the fight, if you've been going on offense and you're just getting battle worn down, you've got a whole host of heavenly armies at your disposal. Just as you are in Christ, you are in him. You're part of his army. But don't start there. Verse 8 and 9 say this. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I'm not going to be ashamed. So Paul's being a little bit vulnerable here. He's like, dude, if I'm coming off too strong, this is the one area I'm not going to apologize for doing so. Because I am building up your confidence and your authority so that you understand what you're connected to, that this is bigger than you, that this is power more powerful than you, verse 9. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. In other words, Christian, as we're moving the ball downfield, as we are taking shots in the end zone of hell, the power and the juggernaut of offensive yards that we gain on darkness ought to be a little bit frightening. Paul said it first. It's like, man, I'm, I know I'm scaring you. I know I'm coming off too strong. I know my letters are frightening you, but that's just the reality of the matter. What you have in you as the church built on the gates of hell is frightening. I've given you your sword. Are you in it? How do you use this book? I've given you prayer. By the way, the Holy Spirit prays for you when you don't know how to pray. So you literally have the second person of the Godhead at your disposal, it ought to be almost a little bit frightening the power at your disposal. So Christian, how's your prayer life? How's your testimony? Time to brush that thing off and share it boldly with somebody. You have nothing to fear. The gates of hell 
are the ones afraid. It's the domain of darkness that's on retreat this morning. It's Satan and all of his cronies that are retreating and are shuddering at the thought of a church body like decided coming up against them and taking some prisoners. So let's share our testimony boldly. Let's share our faith. Let's pray bold prayers and let's take this word of God and wield it for the weapon that it is. Let's pray. Jesus, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to remind our folks this morning that the person they've stopped praying for because they gave up on them, maybe today they'd brush that prayer off and send one up with boldness for that individual. Christian, you've brushed it off. You said, well, I've just put that in God's hands. It almost seems foolish to keep praying for them at this point. You don't know how they just keep making the wrong decisions and they just keep falling back into it. And Jim, just there's just really no hope. I, I haven't prayed for them. I can't tell you. I haven't prayed for them in a long time. It's time to brush off that prayer and put some boldness behind it like you're the church built on top of the gates of hell. How's your testimony? When's the last time you shared what God has done in your life? That's all testimony means. It doesn't have to be scripted out. It doesn't have to be like a Sunday sermon. It's yours. It's the story that God gave you. You share it like you share it. When's the last time you opened your mouth boldly in a setting, in an area where you knew people might not receive you and you said, hey, this is what God's doing in my life. He brought me to this church. He's got me plugged in. I'm on fire in my faith and I just can't help but brag on God. How you doing? It's time to brush that thing off and use it as a weapon this morning. God, I pray this morning that you would frighten us with the power that we hold. That you would remind us that it is our job to be on offense and it is Satan and his demons that are fleeing, that are retreating at the mention of your name, Jesus. I pray for the one today that doesn't know you as Savior. Maybe they have been under bondage, under chains, under sin that has gotten them weighed down. I pray today that they would lay aside those burdens and that weight that so easily distracts and that they would look to you, lifted up as the Son of Man, that they would receive you as Savior, that you died in their place. You paid all the payment of their sin. You rose again the third day, showing them that they have victory in you. I pray for that person today, no matter where they are, to pray something like this. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't deserve heaven. I deserve death. But you came to call me out. You came to take a prisoner from the domain of darkness and bring me into the light as a child of you. And so I accept you by faith into my life. Come inside of my heart. Change me. Make me brand new. If that's you today, you pray that prayer. Just slip up your hand in the air. I'm not going to make fun of you. I'm not going to call you out. I just want to say... I'm proud of you and I'm praying for you. Anybody at all, saying I'm accepting Jesus as my Savior today. Amen. I trust that as believers, we'll go from this place with a newfound fervor, a newfound boldness, newfound confidence that we are part of the army that was dry bones until God breathed into us and made us his powerful church. And we just should not 
get over that. Thank you, God, that we are the ones called to be on offense this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.